0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Richard Alston makes a fifth appearance on the Ithaca Bound podcast. In the past, we've covered topics such as the transition period when Rome went from a republic to an empire, we covered Mark Antony's life. We did an episode on Livia, also known as Julia Augusta, who was wife of the first emperor and mother of the second emperor, Octavian Augustus and Tiberius, respectively. And uh, in the last episode that uh, we did uh, when Dr. Alston appeared on the show was on July 11th, 2021. And that episode, we co- in that episode, we covered Julius Caesar's early years. And so today's episode, Dr. Richard Alston joins the show again, and this episode is going to act very much like a sequel to that previous episode on July 11th. And we're going to cover today Julius Caesar's middle years during his life. Dr. Alston is professor and head of the classics department at Royal Holloway University of London, based in the UK. He has written many publications over his career, including authoring a couple books as examples. Rome's Revolution, Death of the Republic and Birth of the Empire, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he's also author of the book Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117, which was published by Routledge. And Dr. Alston joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Richard. Thank you very much for having me yet again, Andrew. It is wonderful, Richard. We had uh, said said this before the 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 fifth the fifth appearance on on the show it's amazing how how time uh time flies and the uh these these conversations uh gradually build over time so uh today uh we're gonna chat about the middle years of julius caesar's life and where we left off in that last episode and i really encourage uh, anyone that hadn't seen it and, and wants to um Uh, have that full context for this conversation to listen to it as well. That was on July 11th, 2021, Julius Caesar's early years. We left off with uh, you describing how Julius Caesar physically, uh, with an army, crossed the Rubicon River in the Italian peninsula. And it sounded like it it was not just a physical action that he took, but it was also a symbolic one. The, the action really um, was uh, the commencement of a civil war uh, with um, with with Rome, and uh, certainly the 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 what it was uh, you know easy to de- easy to describe, and and you provided more treatment. Um, so like a lot of things in life, what a uh, what's very easy to describe, and the why behind something can get more nuanced and more complicated and in that previous episode you spent some time uh treating uh the wine describing some of the considerations that were at play the relationship which sounded um uh uh antithetical between pompey and and caesar uh the senate and caesar sounded like Caesar's aspirations might have came into the that decision as as well so that's where we left off there so he 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 crosses the the river with an army Uh, the civil war begins Um, and so do you want to take it from there then Richard so what's known about you know he's he's not at Rome at this point he crosses the river Um, what 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 transpires next and as part of your answer and for everyone listening we are talking about the first century BCE so could you also bring in to your response, just so it's flagged as a date uh, when when this civil war uh, began.
1: Yeah, so, so he crosses the river in January forty nine, and this is a great symbolic moment. It, although Rome had a long period of civil disturbances, civil wars were not that common. So he's made a decision. He's made the decision that he needs to he needs to take dramatic action. He needs to take dramatic action to preserve his own life, preserve his alliances with his friends and to end the domination of Rome by a small group of senior senators around Pompey. Now, quite how Caesar would have regarded this is not clear to us. But quite likely he wouldn't have seen this as himself marching against Rome, he'd have seen this against marching against a group of individuals who were dominating the city illegitimately. So to some extent, what he's trying to do is restore Rome as it should be, or at least that's how he would be he would be representing it. Now, Romans had a sort of quite old-fashioned system of organizing the military. So although we think of the Roman army as being a professional group where people were serving for years and years, actually they just raised troops for a particular campaign or a particular series of campaigns. So Caesar had his 10 legions, which had been fighting with him uh, in Gaul, they were battle-hardened veterans. Uh, They'd been serving alongside their general and they were loyal to him. Now in Italy, the Senate and Pompey hadn't got any troops. They hadn't been able to raise troops, they hadn't declared war, they hadn't gone through the procedures, and now they are rushing to do so. So that when Caesar crosses the Rubicon in 49, he is arriving
2: against a rapidly militarizing group, Pompey promised, the Senate that if he stamped his foot he could raise his legions he
1: was now stamping his foot to see what could happen.
0: Okay, and some uh, uh, to work our way through some definitions um, for for background. Um, so what what is when when someone references uh, a legion in this in this context what 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 is a what is a legion including. Um, well, the, probably. So, what is a legion? Probably soldiers is the easy answer. But but if if it's more nuanced than that, um, please please uh, please share in your response. But more, more importantly for this uh, for this question is the the number of, of people that uh, would be part of a legion.
1: A legion's a backbone of the Roman army. And originally, it was drawn from Roman citizens, um, but by this time, it was drawn
2: from citizens uh, of Italy. So really drawn up from the whole of
1: the Italian population, uh, apart from those in Sicily. Uh, It was heavy infantry, they were heavily armored, Uh, they were equipped with two spears and swords and a large shield, Uh, and um, they numbered about 5,000 men, somewhere between 4,800 and 5,200. They had attached to them a small unit of cavalry, maybe 300, maybe 400, that sort of number. Um, they were the shock troops of the ancient world uh, uh, Roman legions uh, moving slowly across uh, the, the landscape were really difficult for any amateur army uh, to stop they were better equipped uh, they came in very large numbers uh,
2: and they knew exactly what they w- were doing most Roman men even in the late Republic, would have served at some point in the legion. Um, it's
1: reckoned that uh, military service of up to six years was pretty standard for a Roman man. That might be divided up over across you know, 12 to 15 years. Um, so nearly everybody in Rome would have had some experience of, of serving in the... In, in, every male would have had some experience of serving in, in, in the legions. It was something you did at one point in your life, mostly, though. So you might serve for a couple of years here, then have a couple of years at home, and serve for a couple of years uh, elsewhere. Uh, we shouldn't think about it in quite the same way as we think about career soldiers nowadays.
0: Yeah, and when I asked that question, I what was initially on my mind was certainly the quantity, um, which you said is about roughly 4,800 to 5,000 per legion in this context. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's uh, for the most part what was on my mind in asking that question. But you brought up something interesting that I want to uh, follow up on, is um, is composition. So what what what's known, um, if anything, about the um, the composition of the army in terms of where uh, we're talking about Julius Caesar's army at this at this time where where the individual soldiers would have been from um, and it obviously it could have been a mix but do you know if it was uh, if it was mostly um, allied communities um, in the Italian peninsula that, is it beyond um, what, what were uh, uh, communities uh, um, sourced uh, for this army beyond the Italian peninsula was it mostly um, soldiers from more the, the, the area of, of Rome. Um, what's known about the composition of Julius Caesar's army that, that uh, crossed the uh, Rubicon? By this time, Roman citizenship had been extended to, to most of the peninsula of Italy. One of the privileges of Roman
1: citizenship was that the men would get to serve in the legions, uh, get paid for service in the legions, and would also benefit from the uh, loot that the legions would, would extract from Conquered areas. In terms of the geographical composition, we have very little idea where people might have come from. The reason, the way we can later start to detect people's uh, geographical origins is we can look at their names. Uh, in Italy at this period, there are still kind of regional names. Um, it becomes more difficult in the imperial period, but we have very few names of soldiers for the. Uh, for the late Republic, they're not writing their names down on tombstones, or if they're producing tombstones, they're wooden, then they're, they're lost. We have a bit more information about issues of social class. Um, originally, to serve in the legions, you had to have a certain amount of property, and that amount of property would enable you to get some, buy some of your own equipment. By the late Republic, last century of the Republic, that property uh, qualification had been waived. Uh, and uh, all equipment is provided by the the Roman state so even before that the the, uh, the property qualification got down to to almost nothing um, so Roman soldiers could be really rather poor uh, before they joined um, again we don't have a kind of social survey of their origins, but it's generally assumed that a lot of the Roman legionaries, the ordinary Roman legionaries, were from the poorer end of society. Now, if you were from a poor family, a poor agricultural family, and that poor family had um, more than two children, um, then your chances for uh, social mobility, for improving your lot in life, or even retaining uh, the, your set of social status of your, of your parents were really quite slim. So you needed an additional source of income, an additional source of, of wealth. Uh, and one of the most obvious ways of getting that, perhaps the only way really of getting that for poor Roman men was serving in the legion. So by serving in the legion you took the risk, you took the risk that you might get killed uh, while, while serving. Um, but it also provided you with income, it provided you with life opportunities, and it, potentially, if you join the right campaign, you could get a, a life-changing amount of money uh, from it.
0: And the show, um, why I asked about the allied communities is the show happens to be covering um, a lot of topics recently of, uh, of uh, the allied communities. It's uh, coincidentally yesterday, the... Uh, the first year of the, the five-year social war was covered with Dr. Seth Kendall of uh, George Gwinnett College in the, uh, in the in the U.S. And the show had covered recently the Etruscans with uh, Dr. Alexandra Carpino and and uh, the Samnites with uh, Dr. Raphael Scopacasa. Um, so the show has been covering the uh, the Allied communities a lot. And and so by this point in time, um, the in history the Allied there's the Allied communities such as like. The distinctions of the Etruscans and the, the Samnites etc those distinctions no longer exist it's all part of the uh, Roman Republic by this point? I think they're all
1: cultural distinctions um, so when you find people mostly from the Augustan period uh, reported in our sources sometimes you'll find out where they come from and sometimes you'll find out the Tuscan or um, come from northern Italy or coming from southern Italy um, but in terms of their legal status uh, and their rights, they were all one citizenship group by, by, by this time. And that's the result of the, the social war, um, where Rome fought against the former allies, the allies who wanted to have a more equal share in, in the spoils of, of, of empire. Um, and although Rome won the war, the, Rome was forced to concede citizenship to most of those allies in peninsula Italy. Um, and, and that extension of citizenship meant that uh, legions could be drawn from all across uh, the, the Italian peninsula. Now, how that was done is, is really not terribly clear. Uh, originally, you would draw up your legionary army by having people turn up in Rome. Um, and then you'd organize them into legions on the campus Martius. Um, It seems that some of those uh, abilities to, procedures were then uh, devolved out into other communities and so that uh, the person who was raising the army, quite often the consul, uh, would actually go out to some Italian towns and then try and raise uh, troops from those areas. Uh, And possibly also you'd get uh, leading figures who would go out to communities in which they had status and popularity, I would, again, draw men into the army and then bring them to to join uh, the main force, normally amassing in Rome.
0: OK, so the so it's forty nine right um, BCE that this war began. Yeah. OK. And you'd mentioned it um, just so that I'm I'm clear. It's uh, how many legions approximately did Julius Caesar have?
2: he's got 10
1: legions okay. so uh, and he's got some support troops probably as part of that we don't know very much about those so we're looking at uh, an army of uh, around 50 60,000 men and although that doesn't sound a lot in our terms
2: um we tend to you know, 56 people is uh, is a sports arena uh, this is a heavily armored uh, a group of people
1: from a sports arena, and we have to think about populations being so so much smaller in antiquity than they are are today. So, uh, although fifty thousand in kind of global terms might not sound very much, fifty thousand very heavily armed uh, individuals turning up outside your house is quite a lot. Yeah, and
2: you have to think that most towns in Italy were probably populations of around seven eight
1: thousand. So again, fifty thousand people turning up. You surrender quite quickly uh, when they when they arrive,
0: and um, it's to some some degree it's 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 relative um, because it will depend on also um, to to some degree how many uh, how many uh, soldiers are on the other side as well.
1: Yeah, and, and um, Roman armies, uh, ancient armies, on the whole, were really quite small, and, and there's a kind of logistical problem if you've got fifty thousand people moving around. Uh, you've got to keep them fed. Uh, you've got to keep them watered. You've got to keep their equipment in, in in order, and that's a huge effort. This is for this is a a very substantial sized town for the ancient world, uh, which is moving about from place to place uh, and having to pull in its resources from those areas. If you look across the histories uh, of antiquity. Um, the Romans put, put, put really quite large armies. That, that can, anything over 30,000 is, is a large army. One of the biggest armies we have attested is in the early empire. we've got about a hundred thousand. Um, but some armies are down to 15, 20,000, uh, which sounds like nothing again in our times. Um, but you know 15,000 keeping 15,000 men in the field equipping them, feeding them, making sure that they take on uh, an enemy is a major logistical task. Uh, and you can't actually do it with, with very many more than that.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point, Richard. And I've had that thought before um, when it comes to hearing about different battles and stuff. I've, I've wondered before the uh, kind of the, min, the minutia behind it, right? Um, where, where, do the, where do these people go to the, the washroom? You know, how are they being fed? You know, how are they staying hydrated, uh, etc. Um, so, okay, so was there any efforts? So this is a, a civil war that occurs. Um, were there any efforts at, um, at diplomacy once the war started? Is anything known about that? So you mentioned Pompey's in, you know, the Senate's in Rome, the Pompey's in Rome, uh, Julius Caesar crosses the, the uh, Rubicon. Was there any? Was there any initial efforts that that's known be t- between diplomacy and and uh, having the war um, come to a quick end?
1: Caesar was famous for his caleritas, his swiftness, and strategically, what he needed to do was cut off the Cretan grounds of italy from Pompey and uh, the the, the senatorial group. So as soon as he crosses the the Rubicon. he makes all haste south. He heads south as quickly as possible. It's a race, really, to get to Rome. It's a race to control the peninsula uh, of Italy. And it comes very quickly, very obvious to Pompey, uh, who's your experienced uh, general, that he's not going to be able to use the Italian recruiting field. So he also heads south, trying to gather as many troops as, as, as he can. Uh, And eventually, once he's gathered as many troops as he can, he and and the Senators evacuate Italy and head off to Greece. Caesar is trying to
2: keep friends at this point. He's trying to keep as many people as possible on his side.
1: It helps him in terms of the legitimacy of the regime. It helps him portray Pompey and those close to him as a small fraction of, of the Senate who are trying to take things over. The politics of it means he really wants to uh, retain as many senators in Rome as he possibly can. So he's sending messages to the senators uh, saying, you'll be safe, you'll be secure. Uh, it's only these guys I, I, I'm after. It's not you. Um, uh, so to that extent, there is, a, there is a, a charm offensive underway. But what he has to do is he has to take Italy as soon as he possibly can.
0: So Pompey leaves for Greece... So what? Um, so what, what? What happens then? Does does uh, can you does Julius Caesar show up in in Rome? Can you speak about those those next events? Yeah. So
1: Julius Caesar sh- shows up in Rome, um, and he's as good as his word. He embraces many of the senators. He promises them security. The majority of the Senate would have done anything to avoid civil war. They possibly can those the richest people in in, in Rome. They've got heavy investments. Um, they're the most prominent political figures. They know that the civil war is an utter disaster for them. They're also fearful that they're going to be victims of it, all their friends or their family are going to be victims of political purges. So they want to sit tight. They, they want to be on both sides of, of, of this fence. Uh, and even really very prominent figures uh,
2: in the senatorial group simply retain remain in Italy. Some would go off to the, the country estates rather than staying in Rome,
1: um, and Caesar does nothing uh, uh, about them. That must- he doesn't immediately go to Greece, though. Uh, what, he, what he where he goes next is, is Spain.
0: Okay, okay, um, yeah. So, let, well, let's go there. So, so why does he go to Spain? Well,
1: you have to think about the Roman Empire as a fairly de-centered, uh decentralised political organisation. Um, so you have governors in the various uh, various districts who are really very autonomous, and
2: each of those governors, or many
1: of those governors at least, have significant military forces uh, at their disposal. So uh, once he's got into, into Italy and he's taken Italy, he's now faced with enemies on all sides effectively. Uh, there's just him. People are offended at his invasion, people think it's a civil war, people are favorable towards Pompe- Pompey, uh, and they have
2: to jump one way or, or, or the other. Um, he also has a little bit of time while he's preparing to get to,
1: to, uh, to, to Greece. And he's able to divert some of his legions from Italy um, uh, to, to take on uh, the governors of Spain uh, and uh, reduce the uh, political and military influence. So he heads west initially uh, and very quickly uh, deals with the, the, the resistance in Spain.
0: Okay, and for um, uh, in definition's sake, so, so, so the, 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 um, the, the Iberian Peninsula, so, so that was a Roman uh, province at, the, at that point. Can you go over that uh, briefly, just the setup of the, yeah. the peninsula? So there's two Roman
1: provinces in, or well, three I think at this period uh, in, in, in Spain um, and they Spain had been under conquest for about 200 years so there were still active military operations in Spain though, at quite low level at, at this stage. Um, because there was also some Roman communities there, there was an ability to raise troops in Spain and so potentially Spain might have had a a significant effect on the on the civil war. He had military resources, he had financial resources, he had political resources, uh, and so again, in this caleritas at this speed, Caesar wanted to take Spain out of Pompey's court uh, and move it into his side but while he had the opportunity. While Pompey was gathering forces at the east, while he was trying to gather himself a fleet to get over to 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 Greece and preparing the invasion against a much more formidable foe. Uh, the Pompey would
0: have been. So was when um, Julius Caesar was on the Iberian Peninsula in one of the Roman um, provinces there at the given time, uh, was he, was he um, uh, placating um, a, a potential um, military force ag- against his, his group or and or was he recruiting? more soldiers for his
2: effort.
1: He was doing both. I mean, the Civil War, the civil war is coming quite quickly on people, but the, the, the political crisis moves into Civil War, at which point everybody has to arm and prepare themselves. If he's going to head East, he doesn't want anybody coming from Spain into his into Italy. Uh, Italy would then be on guard, and he doesn't want to leave a significant rear guard behind. Um, he can also raise some troops from Spain. Um, again, we don't really know where, the, where, where all the legionaries come from, but you can recruit from, from Spain. Um, and he also wanted to show the other political players in the game um, that he was, he was serious about this uh, and taking him on might not have been the wisest thing to do. As always in these sorts of civil wars, uh, people want to choose the winner. Um, Being on the side of the loser is disastrous. Being on the side of the winner is what you want to be. Uh, Caesar's uh, military activities in Spain not only crushed his enemies, uh, but also uh, set up this sense of a success, set up this energy behind his his campaign um, that tried to set the narrative of Caesar as winner.
0: What year? Uh, did did that occur or years when he arrived in um, in uh, in, the, in the back in Hispania? Uh,
1: he's he's in forty nine. This is the summer campaign in in, in forty nine. So this is immediately after uh, the the crossing of the Hall
0: Okay, and uh, Pompey's east in Greece. So then, what happens after um, after his efforts on the? Uh, on the Iberian Peninsula what what occurs next
1: well the next point is to resolve the issue between him and Pompey and this then waits till next year this waits until, until 48 and in 48 uh, Caesar crosses uh, the Adriatic uh, and lands in
0: in the Balkans uh, and leads his armies uh, against against Pompey's forces why do you think Pompey went to Greece. What was it about that region that uh, Pompey believed was favorable for him?
1: It gave him time. Uh, easy communications with Italy. He could gather his forces. He's also been, his great success as as a governor and as a military leader had been in the east. He defeated the pirates, he then defeated Mithridates uh, in, in wars in the east. He then resettled the east and established effectively kingdoms uh, in many of the various um, provinces uh, of, of the region. Um, he had a lot of friends, a lot of support and they were going to give him money, give him troops allow him to uh, build up his army. Pompey's greatness. Uh, His reputation was one of his major political and military resources. Um, So what he could do by waiting was to build a significant military force. You have to remember that he started this war with very little uh, in terms of an active military military force. Caesar had his 10 legions uh, already trained, already ready to fight he needed to gather time, gather forces, organize uh, his troops, gather money, uh, get his uh, allies out of uh, of Italy. Time was probably on his side as he saw it um, and building up his forces uh, was slowly, uh, was the way to defeat Caesar.
0: How many soldiers approximately would Pompey have had uh, when he left Rome? And then how many would he have been able to acquire when he's in, in Greece and is going to um, uh, begin a, a battle with, um, really face off with uh, Caesar when he gets to Greece? Uh, well, we don't know how many he had when he when
1: he came. He left Rome. Uh, There's probably a trickle of uh, troops. Um, he'd have raised as many as he could on his journey to the south, uh, but it would have been a really disorganized group. Um it's only when he gets to greece does he have time to build up his forces to organize himself to get them all into properly organized legions uh, and to plan. but he's probably got a similar amount to caesar so he's probably sitting around around about 50 60 troops um by the time caesar arrives so these are really huge armies uh now he's 100 120 thousand troops on the battlefield on both sides um this is at a point where the
2: uh, total male population of Rome is probably around a million. Um, uh, so you know that's
1: a good proportion of the manpower uh, adult manpower of um, uh, uh, of Rome is actually committed on these battlefields.
0: Can you um, go over what's what's known about how he got to? Greece with so many people?
2: Well,
1: there's he, not that different. It's not that far away. There's lots of traffic across the, uh, across the Adriatic. Um, two big ports down at Bari and Brindisi. uh You'd have gone from, from there. Uh, people would have probably come across from the north as well, marched down from the, the Balkans, having gone through Venice, uh, and then through uh, modern Croatia. Uh, and gathered their forces there, um, and so you get this kind of trickle uh, of of armies coalescing, and he's then pulling in the the armies which are already in the east, um, so places like Syria, Asia Minor, uh, and getting his allies to contribute troops uh, to to either the legions or as allied contingents uh, as well. So there's a lot of. Deep, activity going on to pull these troops from across the, the eastern Mediterranean
0: what's known about the, um, the 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 composition of the army that um, Pompey had by this point in time in 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 terms of um, if, if anything's known about this this the skill of of the soldiers um, if you can maybe, maybe if you could speak about that. So it sounds like they're evenly matched to some degree in, in quantity. What, what's known about who probably had the more skillful army in, in, in terms of experience, but also equipment?
1: Well, they've been equipped in very similar ways that have been equipped in, in the traditional Roman ways. But if you, if you remember, I was talking about how the Romans retreated their troops uh, and that they recruited him for particular campaigns, and that uh, an adult male might serve on several campaigns during his lifetime with camp kind of periods working the farm or doing other things in between. So, Pompey had been a hugely successful general. Uh, when he came back uh, from the from the east uh, in 62, uh, he organized a program of colonization where he'd rewarded his troops by establishing them on land in various communities across Italy. Now those troops, um, and probably the sons of those troops, uh, were likely loyal to Pompey. Pompey had rewarded them with land, he'd given them those life-changing opportunities I talked about earlier. And civil war, was also an opportunity for many people. Uh, it was an opportunity for people to be lavishly rewarded. Pompey and Caesar were both promising their troops um, financial rewards uh, if they happened to be successful uh, in, 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 in the conflict. So what you probably got in Pompey's army is a bit of a mix. You've got the more experienced veterans who had served for extended periods in the East. You've got new recruits uh, who uh, would have, perhaps, his um, friends, uh, friends and family had previously served with Pompey, but are now seeing the opportunities to to enrich themselves, to better themselves, um, and to make lots of money. You'd have got people drawn in from the east, uh, either sent by the various rulers of the, of the east, or. Um, Volunteering again for many of the same reasons that, that Romans were volunteering, and they would need to be organized and trained up, um, pointed in the right direction, uh, and given the basics of, of how to fight as, as a unit. But for the Romans, this is a kind of very cultural thing. They everybody said, everybody knew what they were supposed to do, it was very disciplined. Um, so, in the, in the terms of the quality of the troops, um, we're probably looking at High-quality troops on, on 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 both sides, with a lot of experience of military matters uh, and of uh, battle. Later on, um, when we get to the civil wars of the Triumvirate, um, it's quite clear that legions that have been raised uh, on the spur of the moment, who've never seen uh, uh, action. Um, were regarded as being inferior, quite likely to run if they met met the battle hardened veterans. It's not the case in this war. Uh, everybody knew what
0: they were doing. Okay, so what what happened? Well, the the two battles uh, in forty eight uh, were uh, were crucial. On tenth of July forty eight, Caesar and Pompey met at a place called the Arachium.
1: Uh, and Pompey won. Pompey managed to push back Caesar's forces, Caesar was forced into retreat and he retreated north and he retreated to Photsalos uh, in uh, northern Greece and on the 9th of August at 48 the forces met again. Pompey must have been confident that he was going to win this, he'd won at the Arachium. uh he must have felt that he had the edge over Caesar but Caesar turned Pompey's legions. He defeated them uh, in battle.
0: Uh, they were routed. Pompey was forced to flee. Okay. What's well, known about where he uh, where he fled to, and and, uh, and what what happened next? Pompey fled east. He
1: fled east looking for for, for friends uh, and, and for ally, allies. Uh, Caesar at this point pauses
2: the um, battle the, the military season is coming to an end uh, by
1: the end of August um, he doesn't know where Pompey has gone he needs to start securing those territories that Pompey has evacuated uh, he goes back to Rome he becomes consul for a second time in 48 and it's that's when he gets himself elected dictator uh, as, as well um, he then heads off to Egypt. And uh, in 47, he arrives in Egypt, which is in itself uh, on the verge of a civil war um, between Ptolemy and his beloved sister, Cleopatra, Cleopatra VII. And Ptolemy knew that Caesar was coming. Pompey had arrived uh, at Pelusium Uh, in his territory, and he had a really difficult task. What would he do with with Pompey? In his view, the civil war was over. Pompey had lost, and Pharsalus the East was gradually crumbling away. Um, Pompey was little more than a political uh, refugee. There were still Roman armies opposed to uh, Caesar, Uh, mostly in North Africa, Uh, and North Africa
2: was uh, Pompeian, and continued to be Pompeian for a few years. But the war was tilting in one direction. If he kept Pompey,
1: would he win the enmity of Caesar? Would Caesar uh, decide to replace him with his sister? He decided to execute Pompey and executed Pompey, and when Caesar arrived, presented him uh, with Pompey's corpse. Rather unexpectedly, um, Caesar, perhaps for political reasons, took against this. Uh, The killing of a prominent Roman, the killing of someone to whom he had been a relative by marriage for some time, um, uh, displeased him. I think it also, broke with the um, message that Caesar was trying to uh, propagate at this point, which was a message of forgiveness, a message of Clementia, that persons and people would be forgiven for being on the Pompeian side and that the Romans could now pull together and once more become a raised public uh, political community uh, after all this conflict. In real terms, however, Uh, It's quite clear that he wouldn't have known what to do with Pompey and that a dead Pompey was a much less dangerous figure uh, than uh, an alive Pompey. And his condemnation of of Ptolemy may also have been influenced by the fact that he was about to uh, enter into a very close alliance with Cleopatra and support Cleopatra in the Civil War in Egypt.
0: What year was Pompey killed?
1: Well, he, he, after the battle on the 9th of August 48, he heads into Egypt and he's killed on the 28th of September, aged 57, in Pelusium
0: on the uh, uh, eastern frontier uh, of Egypt. So I want to cover a, a few different things based on um, uh, some of what you just shared moments ago, Richard, and make sure we cover, cover off. Um, can can you so you mentioned that he went back to to Rome. I think I think you mentioned he went back to Rome, um, but you did mention you mentioned he became came consul. So can you can you share what that that dynamic was at this point in time? If he's consul, that's a formal office that is um, is not a dictator of Rome. It's a distinct. It's it's, it's distinct, but it does sound like he has a lot of power and control. So can I think you probably know what I'm getting at, right? So can you can you maybe share what that juxtaposition is between Julius Caesar? Um, it appears winning winning a civil war uh, against Rome, and then and then uh, and then also becomes consul. But then also he probably has a lot of con- con- control.
2: Yeah. Then-
1: the the legal business, legal and the different magistracies are are complex and I would say after even 2,000 years of study we don't fully understand uh, the various interrelationships of the the offices. Uh, The consul uh, was the senior magistrate in Rome in normal years there were two consuls, Uh, they tended to chair the senate, they were the senior officials, Uh, they would often deal with immediate legal and um, uh, military matters, originally in Italy, but later on in the, in the provinces, And natural people would be consul, they would then get a province, pro consul the province, uh, where would, they, they would become what we would call a governor. Um, the years were named after the consuls, they were hugely influential figures, they made all, all the primary decisions in Rome. Um, they were limited more by custom than by reality. They were advised by the Senate. They also had a fellow consul who would have equal power to them. Caesar decides also to take the position of dictator. Now, dictator is a really interesting position because that had been a, a position which would had almost been redundant. Um, so originally a dictatorship is, is, is an emergency position. It's a position where the state is in danger and you can take a dictatorship for a whole series of different measures. Uh, if you somehow fail to hold your elections, which happen relatively frequently, um, you could put, appoint a dictator who would look after matters until you could hold the elections properly. Uh, if there was a, a, um, uh, an army threatening Rome, you could appoint a dictator and the dictator would take absolute control for a short time and deal with the army. These would tended to be really short posts Uh, to deal with a specific issue, and uh, one of the kind of legends of Rome is a dictatorship lasting for uh, 12 days. Now that uh, post had become redundant in the mid-republic, it was regarded as one step away from uh, a monarchy, uh, from a king, it was taken with a great deal of suspicion but when Sulla uh, marched on Rome um, he then took the position of dictator to push through a whole series
2: of reforms Uh, and he was later to retire from that position of dictator in the same sort of ways as was established in the the tradition. Uh, Caesar um, took the dictatorship in in 48
1: presumably to signify a temporary absolute threat to the Roman state um, which he would then uh, have to deal with with the presumption that he would
2: uh, lay down that dictatorship uh, once that threat had been um, alleviated
0: okay um, so to, to clarify what, what year did he become consul again and what what year did he hold a dictator? Position.
1: Uh, he he was consul uh, in forty eight for the second time and he took the dictatorship in the same year.
0: Okay, is it known if he was um, granted dictator uh, in a formal way? Um, I, I, my understanding is Rome, Rome didn't have a written constitution, but there were customs that that existed to to. Properly uh, do things con- um, consistent with um, with with past tradition, etc. So, is it known if if he gained dictate the dictator position con- constitutionally?
1: Yeah, this is another difficult point. As you say, Rome, uh, like Britain uh, doesn't have a written constitution, so uh, these emergency measures uh, are not fully specified in there are regulations or in the rules and sort of different ways in which you could become dictator. Uh, you could have a law passed in which you could be made dictator um, or you could be made dictator uh, effectively by, by the Senate declaring an, uh, an emergency. Uh, whichever system it was that was legitimate to the extent that any of these systems were, were, were legitimate, giving it bit, the title itself, uh, tended to generate a sense of... Um, this was what we had done before, so this must be must be okay. Uh, but yes, there was a procedures. Procedures would have been followed uh, for dictator for Caesar to become dictator.
0: You had mentioned, um, and as a place to wrap up the the conversation, do you want to close out the, the uh, this episode in a, in a few minutes, and we'll we'll wrap up um, basically around the time that he's in Egypt and and uh, met. Cleopatra, and then we we agreed you'd be coming back on the show to cover the the later period of his life, and and w- when we do that conversation, we can basically pick it up at that point. What do you think of that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that'd be great.
0: Okay, so what I want to cover off his um, family life. We we covered his family life in the previous episode, uh, and that was more in his early early years. So so um, this is later now in his life. Um, what's what's known about if he was, and I believe that you'd mentioned, so in the in the previous episode, he was married, um, and I'll try to get the pronunciation correct. Cornelia, let me know if the pronunciation is a bit off. There, she had passed away. He remarried. Can you go over what's what's known about um, uh, if uh, if he was ma- if he was married uh, still in this in this. Period of his life, who he was married to, etc., and if there was any other children. I believe you'd mentioned he had one, one, one daughter, Julia. Um, she had passed away as well, so that was covered in the previous episode as well. So, can you can you cover that the the family side of his his life? What's known about it?
2: Yeah, I mean.
1: The way in which Roman men behaved in in marriage and sex, Roman women as well, was rather different from how we might expect from our kind of um, Abrahamic religious traditions. Um, There was a certain looseness about uh, sexual sexual uh, morality. He married Calpurnia in uh, fifty fifty nine. He'd had many lovers and uh, was um, indeed famous for having a whole variety of lovers, including, uh, perhaps most famously, Sibylia, who uh, was the mother of Brutus, who eventually uh, was responsible for the assassination of uh, Caesar. He uh, had lovers amongst um, various queens uh, of the East, and occasionally he's associated with uh, kings. Um, The use of sexual relations to bind a political relationship was common. Um, uh, Politics was a very personal matter um, and the way in which marriages worked was to bring families together. It's not a particularly romantic sort of, of engagement. He had no children uh, at this point, in spite of his various uh, marriages. Julia had died. Uh, and when he comes to uh, Alexandria, uh, and he is in uh, the palace of Ptolemies in, in Alexandria, Cleopatra smuggles herself into, into the palace to meet him and uh, to form a, a political
2: alliance um, this becomes um, a,
1: a romantic uh, and sexual relationship, and they have a child together, Caesarian. Um, and Caesarian is the only uh, child of uh, Caesar to, to survive him it's clear that this was a long-term relationship it wasn't just um a relationship of the moment um later uh, caesar was to bring cleopatra back to uh rome with him and install her in a villa in Trastevere verde on the other side of the uh of the tiber um she was the model for venus the temple of venus Genetrix. he he he, he built um
2: and they formed a political
1: couple. He used his military force to install her as uh, pharaoh in Egypt, defeating her brother. Uh, And she controlled one of the richest regions uh, of the Mediterranean uh, uh, as a result. And the very fact that Julius
2: Caesar was difficult to find what
1: the word is, romantically engaged um, with um, a queen of the status of uh, Cleopatra, also raised his status in Rome above that of any normal uh, Roman senator. Um, it was a win-win relationship for, for them both, uh, and seems to be um, a highly significant relationship uh, for the kind of future development, future careers
0: so that probably is uh, a spot where we can uh, pick it up, Richard, in the next conversation and we'll spend a bit more time at the start of that episode uh, with him in Egypt, how does that sound? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so, I think the, the, the next big thing for
1: him is the extension of his dictatorial powers from um,
2: being for one year to being for 10 years and then being
0: perpetual. Okay, yeah, let's cover it in the next episode. Thank you, Richard, for coming on the show again. It's always great chatting with you. It's been great. Thanks very much. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Alston wrote, Rome's Revolution... Death of the Republic and Birth of the Empire, and Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117. I'll drop a link to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Richard and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you very much. Bye. Hey again. During the episode, I mentioned two different episodes on ancient communities on the Italian Peninsula. I also mentioned an episode that covered the first year of the Social War. Because publication dates don't always naturally correspond with when episodes are recorded, what I'll do is drop links to all three of those episodes in the show notes for this episode on its associated subpage at IthacaBound.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And as always, I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.